Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. When it comes to jokes about musicians, bass players have to be in the top three, right behind accordionists and drummers. Example, what do you call a beautiful woman on a bass player's arm? A tattoo. What's the difference between a vacuum cleaner and a drunken bass player? You have to plug one in before it sucks. What do you throw a drowning bassist? He is amp. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Yes, it's true that rock and roll really took off with the invention of the electric guitar, but can you imagine it becoming what it has today without the low, steadying thump of an electric bass played through big cabinets powered by warm-sounding tube amplifiers? I can't. And would rock have become what it has without the lockstep rhythms produced by the bass player and the drummer? Uh Uh-uh. That's why we should step back and offer some respect to those who advance the cause and appreciation of low notes. These are the most influential bass players in the history of alt-rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and today we're going to give bass players their due. There have been shows on guitarists and drummers. There have been programs devoted entirely to lead singers and songwriters. And now it's time to offer up some gratitude to the most influential bass players since the punk rock explosion of the 1970s. I'm going to tell you right now that there won't be anybody like John Paul Jones or John Entwistle or Jack Bruce or Getty Lee or Roger Waters on this show. Those are classic rock guys who don't need our help in getting any attention. There's no one from Motown here. There's no one from the jazz scene. So Jaco Pastorius fans can take a pill. We're concerned solely with the alt-rock heroes who thump their way to notoriety and influence. I've picked 10 people, along with some honorable mentions. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine, but one of the purposes of this program is to get people thinking about music, talking about music, and debating music. And besides, everybody loves a top 10 list, right? So here's the criteria. Influence. That's it. The people on this list may not be the most technically adept at their instrument, but they sure as hell inspired a hell of a lot of kids along the way. And that's why I want to start with one of the most primitive and most basic bass players in history, Didi Ramone. This is a guy who took up the bass only after he and his new buddy John Cummings got drunk after work one day and decided to form a band. John, later Johnny Ramone, wanted to play guitar. And Douglas, that's Dee Dee's real name, took up the bass. That was 1974, and neither guy knew the first thing about music, but they didn't care. They just knew that they wanted to make it, even though they couldn't play a note on their new instruments. That was the appeal and the genius of the Ramones. They showed everyone that anyone could do what they were doing. All you needed was the guts to do it. Dee Dee became the main songwriter and the lyricist for the Ramones for 15 years, And yeah, his playing consisted of long runs of the same notes on his original Dan Electro bass. He later moved to a series of Fenders. 
through this fat-sounding Ampeg amp, but, you know, that didn't matter. It was his spirit that counted. And when a young, alienated, disenfranchised kid saw what Dee Dee was doing, well, that was all he, or she, needed. The Ramones, from their first album in 1976, basic rock and roll, built on a super basic bass line from Dee Dee Ramone. The second great bass player on my list also couldn't play when he joined his band. Paul Simonon wanted to be an artist, a painter, but when his friend Mick Jones offered to teach him how to play guitar if he joined his new band, Paul figured, eh, why not? Punk was all about just doing it, and that's pretty much how he felt. However, Paul was a bit of a bust at the guitar. This is too hard, he complained. So Mick said, all right, well then get a bass. There's two less strings. So he did, and he had to learn on his own. In fact, when The Clash recorded their very first album in early 1977, Paul still really didn't know what he was doing. But by the time The Clash got to their third album, a little more than two years later, Paul was pretty proficient. He'd been absorbing the deep bass sounds he heard coming from the windows of new Jamaican immigrants. It was fat and warm and had a groove unlike anything that came out of Britain. This is how Paul came to write one of the best-known Clash songs, Guns of Brixton. The Clash, with bass player Paul Simonon and Guns of Brixton from London Calling, released at the tail end of 1979. Hugely important album, thanks to how it advanced the cause of punk with its sounds and attitudes and influences and its complexities. It's one of the most influential rock albums, period. And by the way, that's him smashing his bass on the cover of London Calling. Certainly one of the most iconic rock photos ever. As time went on, Paul's reggae and ska-influenced rhythms set him apart from most other bass players. And here's a little-known fact. While most other bassists plucked the strings with his fingers, Paul tended to use a pick, and that gave his Fender Precision a more percussive sound. And like D.D. Ramone, he preferred the warmth of big Ampeg amplifiers and cabinets. Peter Hook was another guy who got into music before he knew what he was up against. After seeing the Sex Pistols play in Manchester, he and his friend Barney decided that they could make that kind of noise too. Barney went out and got a guitar, and Peter found a bass. Neither had any money for an amplifier, so they figured out how to wire their gear through the tone arm of the turntable in a console stereo and by one of their families. It was enough. Later, when Joy Division came together, Hookie, like all the other kids inspired by punk, just made it up as he went along. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing was wrong. His bass was slung far too low for proper technique. His stance was all wrong, and his amp was way too underpowered. When the band rehearsed in a room of a local pub, the drums and the guitars were far too loud, and Hooky couldn't hear himself, that underpowered amp. So, to cut through the din, he started playing his parts far, far higher on the fretboard than normal. Add that in with all the other mistakes everybody was making, and, uh... Well, sometimes when you don't know what you're doing, you end up advancing the entire cause of rock and roll in the process. Days 
Joy Division featuring Peter Hook on bass. Again, not the most adept musician, but his approach to his instrument was so different in his day that he became an idol to many. Later, his work in programming bass lines and drum machines with New Order drummer Stephen Morris made that band into something much more than the sum of its parts. So there's how we're going to start this list. Didi Ramon, Paul Simonon of The Clash, and Peter Hook of both Joy Division and New Order. Next, a former school teacher who was the exact opposite of these first three guys. This dude could play. This is my list of the most important bass players in the history of alt-rock. Again, technical prowess isn't necessarily important here. It's influence and what these people added to the mix in the evolution of rock since the punk of the 1970s. And we're doing this list more or less chronologically. We need to talk about Sting. When the police first showed up in 1977, they sounded like no one else. They were punky, but tempered with pop. And they had this reggae thing going, which was highly unusual for the day. Eventually, they became one of the leading bands of the New Wave era and were very important in the establishment of the music video and MTV. The singer and bass player was a former school teacher whose real name was Gordon Sumner, but everybody called him Sting because he used to wear this striped shirt that made him look like a long, skinny bumblebee. Sting knew what he was doing because he had already played in a string of jazz bands. He was able to translate that precision into what the police did. Of course, it also helped that he had drummer Stuart Copeland to work with. He had been a big fan of the prog rock bands of the early 70s and worked for a time at a group called Curved Air. The police sold millions of records, and they won all kinds of awards. And then, of course, Sting went solo and established himself as someone who could play the most difficult sorts of music and weird instruments like the lute. I think this is my favorite police song. Listen for the interplay between Sting and Stuart Copeland. This is magic. The Police, from their 1980 album Zenyetta Mondata and Driven to Tears. Amazing playing from everyone, including Sting on bass. For the number five position on my list, I'm going to throw in Jean-Jacques Burnell. He was the bass player for the Stranglers. Again, not the most technically precise guy out there, even though he was trained on the classical guitar. This explains two things. His bass lines tended to be more melodic. And second, the sound he got from his instrument was very aggressive. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Like Paul Simonon, he used a pick. And to get that growly song, he played very close to the guitar's bridge and drove his amplifier into distortion territory. And this, in many ways, redefined what a bass player could do within a band. This is a great example of what I'm talking about. It's The Stranglers and Peaches from 1977. All the the Stranglers, featuring bass player J.J. Burnell and Peaches from a 1977 album, Ratus Norvedicus. Okay, the first half of this list of great and important bass players is all men. Now, here's a woman who broke all kinds of stereotypes. Back in the 70s, girls were just supposed to sing. If they wanted to, well, they might strum an acoustic guitar. But punk tore up all those rules. Again, the primary premise of punk was, if you have something to say, say it. All you need is the guts to do it. 
When the Talking Heads moved to New York, people were shocked to find that their bass player was a woman. Very few people had ever seen such a thing before. Now, of course, today there are thousands of female bassists. We don't even think about it anymore. But in 1976 and 1977, no way! It was somehow unladylike. It was almost as bad as a woman playing the drums. Now, this alone would earn Tina Weymouth a spot on this list. Her very appearance as a bass player with the Talking Heads exploded so many stereotypes and broke down so many silly preconceptions. But she was also very good. Few new wave bands had a bass player as funky as Tina. Talking Heads and Life During Wartime featuring bass player Tina Weymouth. Seems ridiculous to talk in those terms today, but she was one of the leading suffragettes for the cause of the female bassist back in the day. I mean, think of all the female bass players that have come since. Melissa Oftemar from Holm, the Smashing Pumpkins, Darcy Retsky of the Pumpkins, Kim Deal of the Pixies and the Breeders, Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Nikki Moniger and Silver Sun Pickups, Sean from White Zombie. And a lot of that started when people first heard and saw Tina Weymouth with the Talking Heads. Okay, I'm going to throw a curve for person number seven on this list. His name is John Wardle. And if you don't recognize that name, it's okay because you have to be an uber geek to know him by that name. This guy is a bass player's bass player, which is why I have him on my list. Professionally, he went by the name of Ja Wobble. He was one of the four Johns that hung out together in the punk days. There was John Lydon, who would become Johnny Rotten and then Johnny Lydon again. John Ritchie, who became famous as Sid Vicious. A guy named John Gray that we don't know anything about. And this John, John Wardle. The name Ja Wobble came early. It could be because of his playing style that some characterized as, uh, well, kind of wobbly. Some say it was Sid that did that. When he was drunk, all he could manage was Ja Wobble. But whatever, there were too many Johns in the group, so calling one Ja kind of made things a little easier. When the Sex Pistols broke up, Johnny Lydon turned to Ja to be the bass player in his new group, Public Image Limited. It was a risky choice because Ja tended to be a little prickly. There's one story that he hated a particular drummer so much that, uh, well, he set him on fire. Ja's playing was heavily influenced by dub that Jamaican style of playing that could be slow and low with a deep, deep groove. After leaving Public Image, he got deep into world music, long before many people working with musicians from as far away as China. Actually, his most important work came in this area. People have sought him out to play on their recordings and for collaborations. He is very skilled, very versatile. And to think it all started as a bunch of thugs hanging out together. Here's Wobble with Public Image. This is from 1978. Public Image Limited, featuring bass player Ja Wobble. He's number seven on my list of Alt-Rock's 10 greatest bass players. Three more to go, and I have a feeling that I'm going to get some pushback about number eight. We'll see. That's next. This is a list of Alt-Rock's most important bass players. It's my list, so it's rather arbitrary. You may disagree, but that's fine. In fact, that's good. Anything that gets people talking about music in intelligent ways is always a good thing. My choice for number eight on the list is Simon Gallup of The Cure, 
Again, not the most technically adept guy, but his unique style and approach to the bass more than made up for it. Gallup was The Cure's second bass player. He came on board in 1979, but then he was fired in 1982 when he got into a fistfight with Robert Smith over who was supposed to pay a bar bill. But two years later, he was back in the band and has been there pretty much ever since. In addition to playing bass, Simon also played bass pedals during live gigs and keyboards when necessary. He plays a variety of models, but he seems to like the Gibson Thunderbird, which is why the company created a special model just for him in 2004 to commemorate 25 years in The Cure. Now, of course, The Cure is one of the most influential alt-rock bands of all time. And the rhythm section, especially the bass, has been a big part of their most important songs, like this one from 1985. The Cure, featuring Simon Gallup on bass. My pick for number eight on this list of alt-rock's most important bass players. For number nine, it's got to be Flea. Michael Peter Balzeri was born in Australia. His stepfather was a jazz musician, and a lot of guys were always coming over to the house to jam. And that's how Flea's first instrument became the trumpet. In fact, he didn't even like rock. He was so serious about jazz that he wanted to do that for a living. It wasn't until he met two kids at school, Anthony Kiedis and Hillel Slovak, that he began to even listen to rock with any kind of seriousness. Hillel was in a band called Anthem, and after they lost their bass player, he asked Flea if he'd like to try. Influenced by his years of jazz study, Flea developed a style of slapping his bass, which gave everything a new jumpy, funky sound. He studied Bootsy Collins, a former member of George Clinton's band. Sly and the Family Stone became a favorite. After Anthem, Flea soon found work in a hardcore band called Fear and was actually offered a job by Johnny Lydon in Public Image Limited after Jaw Wobble bailed. But in the end, he returned to his buddies Hillel and Anthony, and they became the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Here's where Flea's slap bass style was at its peak. It's the Mother's Milk album from 1989. The Chili Peppers and Higher Ground from Mother's Milk. Now, if you're a fan of Flea, you'll know that his playing style has changed dramatically since then. The slap style has been all but abandoned in favor of a more melodic approach. Fewer notes, more emotion, less frantic. He became a fan of Simon Gallup and the way he played with The Cure, and how Peter Hook did what he did with Joy Division. And in the process, Flea became one of the most copied bass players, not only in alt-rock, but in all of rock in general. I love this quote from Bass Player magazine. Any instrument is just a vehicle to express who you are and your relationship to the world. No matter what level you're doing it on, playing music is an opportunity to give something to the world. That's Flea. And Flea has brought something to a lot of worlds. He played with everyone from Jane's Addiction to Young MC. All he really wants to do is play. And finally, the 10th guy on my list. And no Primus people, I wouldn't even think of leaving out Les Claypool. Out of all the guys I've seen play, I've never seen a guy attack a bass like Les. He can rock out, he can get super funky, he strums the strings, 
Some of his guitars have a whammy bar, which is really weird, so he can bend notes in unusual ways. Sometimes he just slaps the strings. On other occasions, he just taps them with his fingers. And live, he does all this while singing lead. Sometimes the notes are pure. Other times they go through a series of processors and distortion pedals. Some of his guitars have the standard four strings. He also plays a six-string bass when the need arises, or, if necessary, any variety of stand-up basses. Now, there's a story that says he was offered the job of bassist in Metallica after the death of Cliff Burton, but he didn't get the job because, and this is a quote, he was too good. This is my favorite Primus track of all time. It's from a 1992 album entitled Sailing the Seas of Cheese, and it features a great guest vocal performance from Tom Waits. Just listen to the technique. That plank still freaks me out. Les Claypool and Primus with Tommy the Cat. And that's it for my completely subjective list of the most important bass players in the history of alt-rock. They are, and again in no particular order, Didi Ramone of the Ramones, Paul Simonon of The Clash, Peter Hook of Joy Division and New Order, Sting, J.G. Burnell of The Stranglers, The Talking Heads Tina Weymouth, Ja Wobble, The Cure's Simon Gallup, Flea, and Les Claypool. Again, you may disagree, and that's good. You know, if we had more time, I would include a few more people in my list of alt-rock's greatest bass players. Mark King of Level 42 doesn't get nearly the respect he deserves. Stunning slot bass technique. Tony Levin, the guy in Peter Gabriel's band, is a joy to listen to and to watch. Whenever I see Gabriel in concert, it's him I'm paying attention to. Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth. How many women, how many guys did she inspire? Same with Kim Deal of the Pixies. And if you want to include Cliff Burton from Metallica on this list, okay. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint, if you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chances Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music, it's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects. Do you sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet? Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, 
Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video; now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean. We're talking to the creator, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker, so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done, and, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith, and I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. 
And that's what got that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the Hungry Like a Wolf video. Like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and 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 just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And and before we jump, I just want to say please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.